from tragedy to triumph. Hosted by Aaron Lane. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Tragedy to Triumph. I'm your host, Aaron Lane, a man in long-term recovery who has dreams and aspirations of doing big things. My guest today is Chris Skinner with Rockstar Recovery, which I'm really excited to talk to because I've seen a lot of his work. I heard him speak a couple weekends ago. He's got a really powerful story from what I can hear and just want to kind of give an in and out to someone who's actively working in the recovery community and helping others. So with that, I would like to give you Chris. Chris. Hey there. Thanks for having me on, you're Aaron. welcome, brother. Really appreciate it. You know, Long time no see. <laughs> it was really nice <laughs> officially meeting you. It wasn't too long ago, really. Another couple weeks. But it was a beautiful event. Uh, I got to hear some of your story, too. And I am the founder of Rockstar Recovery Foundation. That's officially what it's called. Um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um that's been up and running for two years, but the Facebook group's been up for over four years, and okay. it just started with a couple of us really just wanted to do something to help the community, society a little bit more, because I've lost a lot of friends uh, to addiction, drunk driving, and it just burns inside of you to want to do something about it once you find out some of the solutions to right. your own problems. And you can see you share people. that with people. Exactly. Yeah. And so doing that, just it just took off. And uh, there's 14,000 people in that group now. Crazy. People reach out every day. And I'm not on there a lot, but the community just comes together and they lift each other up. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen it in there. Yeah, and, I participate. So I, yes. I know that's what it was one of the key things. Like, I'm part of this group. I see what's going on. Let me talk to the guy who started it. Let me just do that. Awesome. And uh, I think, it, no, I, I, it's really commendable because one of the things that I find in everybody that comes on this show, regardless of their program of recovery, is that they all give back. And I'm like, that is what fixes this, is giving back and compassion. And I see that that's a big part of your life. So with that, now knowing what you do today, you know, running this nonprofit, I mean, you, you know, you work there. It's like a huge part of your life. I'm guessing you would have never anticipated that. It's not like you were a little kid and said, I can't wait to run a Facebook. What if Facebook didn't even exist? But right. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. So let's rewind the clock a bit. I'm going to start like, where are you from? How did you grow up? I mean, are you from Cincinnati? or? Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Ross, Ohio. Oh, it's, shoot. My grandparents are out in Ross, like Birdtown or something. Not quite Birdtown, <laughs> but off Lehigh. Uh, my grandpa lived off Millville, Shandon, and uh, we Moved out to the trailer park, me and my mom and dad. They were married but got divorced when I was about three or so. Trailer park. Yes. So, so I'm a trailer like, park kid. No, what's it like growing Ross up in trailer, trailer park? park That's kid. what I'm saying. So, like, for my listeners that are not here in Cincinnati, uh, Ross, Ohio is kind of like you're bordering. Uh, it, it's not quite country, but it is. I mean, it's, it's country. Know, it's a small town. Hillbilly. Feel. Like my, like for laborers, instance, my um, elementary bit. school had no black kids in it. There you go. Okay. So, so, I mean, you have people, some of them who their family has farms, mm-hmm. but some of them who work in the city. There's hunting just, and fishing and four-wheeling, and that's about it. Right. So, and very small, <laughs> close-knit, and you lived in a trailer park. Yeah. A double wide. So, my or family's like, good. I love my family. The Skinners pretty much lived out there, and... Uh, it was just a trailer, and and once my dad left us, my mom struggled to make ends meet. Ooh, that was back in when they didn't really enforce child support. Okay, and my dad just didn't, just didn't pay. pay, and they didn't. He wasn't a bad guy, and we were supposed to see him every other weekend, but that kind of didn't happen. And mom took out her frustrations on me a little bit, 
and I've went through some things, some different abuses, and like I don't, I'm I'm not angry with my mom or anything today. Recovery has taught me to forgive and understand and everything like that. But it was, it was my reality it was a very abusive, neglectful, dark childhood. Well, and I think that's important. Like uh, you, you know, a lot of times you, you know guests come on my show, including yourself, and we'll talk about things from our childhood, having processed them as adults and in recovery. And I respect that. And I'm glad that you preface these stories with that. However, being a kid, all right, let's just try and think about what it's like for being a kid for a second. Mm-hmm. Like, what was a day? What when you say you suffered some abuses and things like that? What were the things that like stick out to you in the during growing up? Well, we were always playing outside and uh, trying to stay out of the house. Really, it's it's a lot different than what the kids do today. Right, stuck on the devices, but it's also. It's a it's a darker world these days too, and kids getting snatched up. But that back then we didn't have to worry about that. All the kids just played yeah, just everywhere. Play I get that. Mom was upset. I mean, she would let me have it. One incident I remember, and I I don't want to make her just sound horrible, but this was a bad one. And I spilled Kool Aid in the fridge. I was five, and I blamed it on my little three year old sister, and she definitely didn't do it. My mom came in and just <laughs> took a little tent pole that I had in my room and just wore me out with it. And I just was scared of her after that, you know? And, and it, you're telling you're five years old. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even walk and go to school. So she even cried and was very sorry, like, immediately. You could tell. Like she took out a she lot was, of aggression. Looking back, she was taking it out on me. You and know? I get that. And that's not my My dad point, cheated like, on my mom. And, and she, had, she has to raise you guys by herself. Yes. And, like, not making enough money. And... I mean, whatever it is. Wearing the same clothes every week and struggling, getting made fun of at school. But see, that's the thing, like, within this and, you know, how my show works Mm -hmm. is to dive into these these parts and these – this is a tragic situation, right? Mm -hmm. You're a kid. You don't have any control over what your parents did. Exactly. Zero. And, you know, you're you're five years old you made a mistake, this very simple, innocuous mistake of spilling Kool-Aid. So, yes, you lied about it. But the, the, the consequences of lying, oh, my goodness, Siri, the consequences of lying, she just talks to me randomly. Uh, the consequences of lying were so big, and it's heartbreaking to me, right? Because this exists, and it's not, oh, my gosh, I, I, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> it's like, we don't know what's happening. That never happens. I'm truly a professional, but yet my phone just updated. Um no, because there were times in my life where I've suffered consequences, too, that were well above. Or being a dad, too, and taking my anger out on kids. This is something we hear. is like, that's not a, it's not the right like thing to do. I didn't deserve that. That's what I mean. I may right? have done something wrong, but that was to the extreme. And do you think, I mean, from because this is a singular event, right? That was a singular, singular event. Singular event. Mm-hmm. Uh, caused you some uh, trauma, some pain, fear, right? Uh, physical pain on top of it. Not being able, like, you. So, I mean, it was bad enough to where you couldn't. You remember, like, yeah, that was back when parents, you know, whipped their kids. And that's more. Sort of my dad, but too, this, right? This but this was, was a little with, bit with objects, you right. know, we had paddles, yeah, and, or belts you know, or something yeah. like this was taking it up a notch. And you know, it, it's unfortunate. And I, I, I believe through and through that, uh, you know, this is a situation where I don't think it, it made you become an addict or anything. I don't think that that one event, it right, contributed to the pain that's and the I mean. darkness okay. and the feeling of less than inadequate uh i'm not good enough for my own mom my dad doesn't want to be around me right that's what i'm saying you know so as a kid that's your understanding as a kid and that was the first seven years of my life we moved to springdale where it was so much more integrated and my next door neighbor was black my friend blaine he became my best friend 
And it was probably the best thing that happened to me at the time to change environments and everything and to get out of that. My mom married a man and So she found somebody and they mm-hmm. and He was making met. good money. We got out of the That's trailer awesome. park. Okay. And shortly after that's when my father died. He and died. You hadn't seen him a lot, right? Nope. There would be times where he was supposed to come pick us up and he wouldn't. And I'm sitting there waiting all night long yeah. for him. Uh, I remember this one night at the babysitters. He was supposed to pick us up at night. And I waited all night long. The sun was up and I'm playing Mario. That's when Mario came out. Yeah. And she had the, the Nintendo. And she's like, what are you doing, Chris? And I'm like, oh, I'm waiting for dad. And she just gives me that look like, he's not coming, hon. Mm. And I'll never forget that. I even get a, like a emptiness in my stomach. Today. Because I just wanted my dad. And he was yeah. nice to us. It's just. He wasn't there enough. He was going through a lot himself, but I didn't know that at the time. I just wanted my daddy. Yeah. Just like my son wants his daddy. When you say your dad was going through a lot of stuff, what do you mean? Well, he lost his mom to like cancer. During... So my grandma, I've never met. I never met because she died before I this was This is born. after your parents got divorced, right? Before. Or before. Um... My parents were teenagers, basically, when they got married. Okay. Well, that's a They huge... were not ready for that. Gotcha. Um, and... Why my parents did love each other and everything, they, my father was just caught up with his own destruction and drinking. Using. So he was he alcoholism then? Yes. Okay. He drank well, then there's and drive a genetic the component here. Mm-hmm. So he would drink and drive all the time. Like your dad was not. He was. Fit a, to he be... was a Rolling Stone. Papa was a Rolling Stone. <laughs> but everybody loved him. Like he was a likable guy. At, at his funeral, it was very sad. Uh, there was cars piled up for miles down the street. And uh, my grandpa standing over my father's casket, crying and sobbing and saying, man shouldn't have to bury his son. And uh, that always stuck with me because I'll fast forward a lot, but I'll come right back because I went through times where I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself. Mm -hmm. But I always remembered my grandpa and I'm like, you know what I mean? I don't. I didn't want to leave my son the way that my father left me. Because seeing my my dad laying there in the casket as a kid, it's like, what is really going on? Is he gone? Like I didn't understand, but I knew that I could never leave my son that way. So yeah, I just you held, held that on. true. You know, it's but it, and and I'm gonna just say it because it, it popped in my head. But you're like all of these people, all these cars show up to your dad's funeral. All these people who loved him. Um, and you as his son who didn't get a chance to see him enough. And yeah, that's exactly. sad to me. It was. I mean? it's it really like, what is. did these like, people all get that I didn't get? Right. Like, so my, so why, you know, they were more of a focus. Like, that's great that he's popular amongst the, the, the community, but I need my dad. And that's something that you I'm had I'm glad time. you nailed that because that's an absolute feeling that I've felt a lot. And, uh, like, why wasn't I good enough to be around my dad? You know, yeah, I tried. And but... that's the thing. Like, it, you, you know, yes, we know at the end of the day, uh, more than likely, it had nothing to do with you, right? It didn't. Absolutely. And it was just like your dad had kids young and was still in party mode and, and had issues with substances. So his life was run by that. And he tried to still be a good dad. He tried, he but did. he just... He so, definitely and, did. And so, and unfortunately, he's not here to even defend that and talk about it. And maybe, you know, your childlike understanding of it, and are, you've been talking about it now... It's not done paint the entire picture of it anyway, right? Yeah, and through recovery, I've been able to reflect and look back and, and have that desire to want to know what he went through, what my right. mom went through. She was abused, too. And it, it's just like I had two parents that really were good people, and I love my mom today. She's still yeah. alive and everything. But I've been able to forgive. 
Yeah. That's what recovery teaches us is mm. to forgive. So try to make sense. And even when you can't make sense of something, you Just still got to forgive. Yeah, them still anyway. do it anyway, right? So my dad did teach me how to play baseball. Okay. And so I held really on to sports? that. I loved baseball. I was a pitcher. I played for Springdale for nine years. And that's where I took out my anger, my frustration. I, I threw 84 miles an hour by the time I was 12 years so old. Pitcher. Like, I was, was being scouted by the Reds. miles an hour. Astros and the Reds were scouting me. And I was always against the drugs. My mom did teach me, you know, you don't want to ever smoke pot or do drugs or none of that. So you never really experienced any of that in high school then, really? To speak of. Or Junior high. Okay. So we moved. Here's where it all changed. <laughs> okay. So well, high school's where we'll, it we'll all just make changed. sure I understand. So your dad's gone, right? And mm-hmm. that really, second grade, we move out to Springdale. Okay. He died while we moved out there. So just shortly oh, after okay. we moved out there. Gotcha. And so I transitioned to a new school and they found out I missed school. And one of the kids, whenever people would get in an argument with me, their go to was, well, at least I still have my dad. Dude. Can you imagine what that well, kids feels are like? Evil. I would just put my head on the desk and just cry. I'm, I'm like, like how, you got me, you got yeah, me. That's a burn hate, and a half. It's like really hateful stuff. You know so, what I mean? moving to Lakota, Princeton to Lakota, two totally different schools. Yeah. You know, Princeton had we had security guards, armed security guards. There was some brutal stuff that went on. Um, dress codes and all that, but Lakota is kind of like you know free for all, do whatever you want. A lot of kids trying to act like tough, but ghetto. Right, but we called were... them wiggers, basically. That was our terminology for it. And I'm like, well, you know, it's it was just I struggled to fit in because I couldn't get on the baseball team. They didn't let me on the team. They you had, had their played team. all this time up into that. Okay, Keep couldn't going. get on the team. I was starting to dress alternative, listening to Nirvana and Sublime, and I was trying to fit in with the skateboard kids. I pretended that I had smoked weed before because I wanted to look cool, and I finally smoked my first bowl, and I loved it. Really? Like that quickly? Reality. I was was in another world. So this was your first experience with that hanging out. Like you told him, oh, I've already done it. Yeah, let's do it again. Let's break this down. So yeah. (laughs) So you're you're hanging out with these guys and girl or whatever. One guy. One guy. Yeah, he was a neighbor in my uh, neighborhood. I don't want to put his name out there, but. No, it's fine. So, and he's telling, you're like, yeah, let's go for it. Were you anxious beforehand or like, okay, what's going to happen? Am I going to. I knew that I had to do this at some point because I had said that I did right to like prove myself. But also, I did want to venture out there and see what the hype was all about. Like, why do you guys do this? Right, and then you did, and all of a sudden you said you loved it. What was it that you loved? Well, what made it okay to do it in my head was we found out that my stepdad did it. Oh, so yeah, I can't like. So I learned it from you, Dad. This is a gigantic (laughs) moment in my life because. I'm witnessing a very successful man. He right. was the general manager of a large uh, carry Ford. He brought in over 200000 a year. My mom was a Remax. She she was a realtor. So we were doing well, and I'm like, well, Dare's lying. Like, pot doesn't ruin your life. I'm right. like, so all the other stuff Dare said, I questioned too. Acid. Okay. Started immediately doing acid with so these guys. So he was like really your dad growing up, though. What's up? Was, I said, was he like your dad growing up, then? Who? Your mom's husband. Oh, no. He was completely different. No, I mean, like acting father since you had He tried. So you, he, were, you were just weren't having it? Yeah. Like, after my dad died, 
I just had a big ball of fury in me, and, and my mom said, you know, Dave wants you to call him dad. And like, I was like, ain't happening. that's not going to happen. So he did try, like, but he was also adopted and never had any blood relatives himself. So he was kind of cold with the family thing and would say some pretty brutal things about my family, like my grandma and stuff like that. And, and so it was verbal abuse from him. That I now, wild. They're like, look, I mean, you know, I start breaking these things down. This is fairly messed up in a lot of ways. Like here, you barely saw your dad. He passes away. Your mom, you know, at one point in time was so frustrated because she couldn't make ends meet. Then meets a guy. They get together. There's some success there. You're living in a better environment. Dad dies. We get checks from the government, too. Right. So All of she, that. like, was happy that he died almost. You know, right. I could tell. Like, now we don't have to deal with him anymore. Plus, we get $1,000 a month from but the government. Like, and that, well, what I'm getting at, though, that there's still a lack within, like, compassion and love and all these things in a lot yeah. of ways. Uh, and some of it you refused. You know, whether he did, like, your now stepdad at the time may not have had the, you know, was trying to. He was just different. And he would your play dad. baseball with me well, and that's stuff what I'm like saying. that. So it wasn't, but... like, all bad. Like, you know, look, I grew right. up, my parents were divorced, my stepmom you, you know, had never experienced having kids, and she did her best. And we sometimes resented her for it because it wasn't the way our mom, we had a mom, right. and she would treat us way different. My stepdad, who was my football coach before that, you know, there was a resentment there because he was my fucking football coach. Right. So, but yet they all were trying to take an active role in raising us and give, learn, teaching us uh, more skills, but I never would accept the love of these people the same way I did for my own parents. And mm -hmm. I get that. So I understand the feeling here. I'm just always curious as how these things shape us because now, you know, you have a guy who did help you out in some ways and like it was like on your terms though. It's completely your terms. Yeah. From what I, I could I look hear. at it like they they tried their best, yeah. which doesn't always look no, good. But just because it's and someone's best doesn't mean it's the right thing. Personally for me, like I know my mom wasn't set up for success. And I give her that one hundred percent. She did try her best and she's my hero. She's beating breast cancer. She's wow. Just somebody that is just solid rock no matter what. She's never given up. What did your dad pass away from? He hit a truck head on. In a drunk driving. He left the bar saying he was gonna go kill himself. And he did. So it's I look at it like he did. Killed himself. Because he said, he, he left the bar in a rage and said, I'm, I'm going to do it. This is what my cousin said. Shit. And he had a truck head on. There was a 10-year-old boy in that truck and the, the driver, and they both lived. But still. Thank God for that. Okay, so a month before this even happened, <laughs> no, my father no. just went through a telephone pole, split his car in half, and he had splinters on his shoulder from the telephone pole. And he ran home. So he felt he was untouchable because I, I felt the same way. Because I have Wild, four man. DUIs. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. I mean, you know, and we'll get into the, you know, the The whole thing was my fist up. I'll never be like my dad. I'll never end up like him. And yeah. I became him. And so it just proves, like, this addiction thing is a lot more powerful than people think. You don't just yeah. go out there and, yeah, I want to be a loser for my whole life. No. You know? Because you made a stand earlier on, like, I'm not going to be that person. And yeah. I'm not going to raise my children like this after you lost your dad. Like, I'm going to be present and all yes. these things. You know, like I'm, I'm, dude. I'm a lot like my dad too. It's on, it's unreal in so many ways. And you know, the uh, not being able to to stop, like you know, I hit people below the belt, like or being a salesman and wanting and having an entrepreneurial spirit, but also very uh, defensive. And you know, like the list goes on. Like these things are are built into us, like that we don't. Whether it's through nature or nurture, do you know what I mean? Whether mm -hmm. it was like what I saw my dad do, right. or just because 
genetically it could be built part within of me. That's what I'm saying. So here, you know, there, there's a lot, obviously a lot of learned behaviors in your life, but there's also things that were beyond your control that were just in you. And this is one of them. Your dad having issues with alcohol and, you know, drugs, I'm, I'm guessing, who lost his life as a result of it, which is deeply sad. It's sad. And I could see how fearful and angry you would be as a kid and, and not really in being a child, not knowing how to process that. And who are you going to bring it to that you're, yeah, you know, I had I mean? so many unanswered questions. And you, you just know? had to live and with I, it, right? I never went and talked to a counselor. About well, no, you like your mom is, you know, like you perceived your mom to be happy. Because it's you know, she didn't have to deal with them anymore. Now so she definitely like, is getting. getting I feel obligated to be happy and just go along with what's going on in the family, even though I'm feeling like I'm suffering. It's been inside. a while to think like we don't re- think. Uh, but growing kids, up, having a voice, like we don't have a voice, and that's true though. Children don't really have a voice because they're children, and that's yep. not necessarily we just keep right. It like, together. I look at my oldest daughter who's 14 in high school, and I remember what I was like at 14 years old in high school. I thought I had it all figured out at that time. And I was fairly bright, however, unexperienced. And I look at my daughter and have to recognize that she's bright, but also unexperienced, too. She's going to have to figure out these things for herself. I'm just hoping she makes the right decisions. Because at her age, I was doing all sorts of dumb stuff. It's tough. My son's 14 also. So you get... Yeah. Freshman high school, too? Yes. He goes to Mason. I'm very grateful that he goes to that school. They are very proactive about talking about drugs and stuff. I've been to one of their seminars. Um, But still... You can't stop him from doing those drugs. No. You can only arm him and arm your daughter and with that know, knowledge. Right. And our experience is golden for this Correct. because my son respects me, and he's he won't even take child's Motrin if he gets hurt in right. football. I'll, 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 I'll be, be all right. right. I'll be all right. Well, that's, that's a good, good. sign. No, that's a is. good sign. He doesn't want to gravitate. He doesn't to want them to live their life in fear of the. You know, I mean, right. to a point, you do. But uh, I always tell I'm my like, kids. I know you're probably going to go out there and you're going to drink, son. I really hope that you never drive. Mm-hmm. After That's what's right. happened, you have never met your grandpa because of this. And your father almost lost his life out. because of it. My last DUI should have killed me. for sure. You, my face stuck to the windshield. Well, we'll get into that. It's just <laughs> you start breaking these things down. And I look at my kids and my oldest and she's going to experience that as she in high school, maybe even this year. Maybe she already has. We just haven't really talked about it yet. And my hope is that because I've already told her if she ever gets in the car with someone who's been drinking, she will not, like, she's just not going to do anything for the rest of her high school. Like, that's a very serious thing to me. Don't get in someone's car who's driving. And if you drink and drive, you will not drive until you graduate high school. It's just that simple to me. And I don't think that, it's I mean, serious. And no, it, it's like a be- very baseline. That's it. No questions asked. I've already identified that. She knows I'm not kidding. So, because. That's good. Well, there's well, also the world of Uber now, too. Right. We didn't have that. No, we didn't. I, I, not at all. Like taxis were seventy bucks or so. If, yeah. Now you, you just know, a but, little app. You can you know ride a little scooter too. But the, or at the same time, when we were teenagers, we didn't. We just thought it was cool. Always oh, had something to drink and he's driving around. Like, huh. what am I going to do? Call my mom? Right. Because then everybody will make fun in trouble. of you. Are we getting in trouble too? And all but that. These other kids stuff? are more aware we're, nowadays. I'd resourceful. say because of the like, epidemic that's been happening, the shootings in the schools and stuff. Like these kids go through a lot more trauma than. And we did, I yeah. feel like, because it's just regular to have school shootings and drills for That's it and terrible. stuff. It's terrible, though, man. So that these this kids the are in. aware that there's dangers out there. Yeah. We just have to make them aware of the peer pressure, the ways that you can refuse it. You know, it's cooler to keep your life together. Yeah. So. You know, I went to uh, Heartland High School last night. Uh, you know, I talked to you about briefly before we started this. And it was a really beautiful idea. Only one school like this in the state of Ohio. Yeah. Uh, the governor was there. I mean, I I was I was given the opportunity 
which is crazy to me to be the MC of this entire open house event. They got a million and almost a million and a half dollar grant from the from the state to start this recovery high school. And I'm looking at these, you know, young adults, which I'll call them not they're they're children, but they're still young adults. They're all in high school. Yeah, sure. And they have like it really embraced the idea of recovery and they're learning life skills and all these things. Like they have a hugely cool opportunity that I deeply wish that I would have had a chance to participate in as a kid because of the learning environment, not just the anti-drug part, just in basic education. How, You're like, this how is be how a awesome. responsible adult. That's the thing. So remember, how to love yourself. It's huge. And these, and they were compassionate and, and smart and fun. And they get to, and they all learn differently. And some of them want to be like, I want to work on cars. I'm like, well, we'll figure that out. And someone's like, like a girl's graduating school early. So she's going to go to college. She's already taking college courses now. And you're like, this is, this is beautiful. And we mm-hmm. need more of this. Absolutely. You know, it's like, uh, I read an article saying, you know, why are we teaching, you know, we're teaching sex ed, but we're not teaching addiction. And you're like, you know, I had the dare program, but they didn't tell you what it was all about. They just said, don't do drugs. Kids, drugs are right. bad. That's not enough. It's not what this sh- should really be. Like don't demonize, you know, what you do is because you're going to, it's like, don't push the red button. Right. Yeah. The more you say exactly. it, like you're going to end up pushing it. I, I think there should at least be. Get the taboo away. Maybe not it. a mandatory addiction class in high school, but you can take it. And most parents would probably want their right. kids to take that. To it understand. should at least be an option there and where you have people in recovery to come talk right. about it. Stuff like that. So, I mean, my well, my point was that like. We have some good you, things going on in really Ohio. Do. That's a beautiful thing. We need more we of those. Want, yeah. Texas has several of them. I saw a documentary on it. And I'm like, this is what. The whole country needs to well, be Well, the doing. goal is to spearhead and be involved, board of directors for Cincinnati location, because it's desperately needed here. And I'd be willing, I mean, I'd stop everything for a month to focus on that because- I would volunteer to help. That's what I mean. So we'll, let's, we'll figure that out as time moves forward, because ultimately, you know, what a cool way to give back. And I always say we may be putting a Band-Aid on our current generation, like for people like yourself and myself that have already experienced this part of this epidemic so, so terribly is a being part of it. But my hope is that my children never have to participate. Yes, and that's 100%. the thing. Like, All right, it's a little late for us. I don't want Fine, my kids band-aid. to go around burying their friends. That's what man. I'm saying. So let's go. Let's aim on them and making sure that they realize that recovery is a superpower. It really is. No, it and really so, is. So I use the Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's my go to. I believe in that, and it has not failed me. You just have Did to remember up to with that? reach inside of you. Um, I was dragged around in church and I hated it. Okay. So I rebelled against it Yeah, really hard, uh, I might add. And I, I tried to disprove the Bible and everything. Like I was obsessed with this is all fake and made, and made up because I lived that destructive life. I'm like, if God's real, why is he doing all why this Why did he take me? my dad from Why did he take my dad? Yeah. Why did he put me through the abuse? I was even molested at babysitter's houses. I didn't talk about that, but then I've been sexually abused too. I had every form of abuse you by could by male or female. Female. Okay. So we'll it wasn't absolutely say, horrible, but no, it's like well, let's not even go that far. It's I don't want to downplay right. it, but that's why I never brought it up because I told myself like, it was oh, an it was older lady, so it was cool. But I was six. I shouldn't be doing that no. stuff. But yeah, I think you can. That's a big part of this. So you're also experienced. Like when you said forms of abuse, that is one. We don't have to unpack that. Other than, do you remember how that made you feel? Yes. And what was that? Uh confused taken advantage of and physically it hurts sometimes like i can't really get into detail detail but well, i don't really she want definitely forced me to do things that i didn't want to do that hurt me physically and also hurt me inside when she she would make this little hand motion and we go in the other room and when she would do that like 
you'd cut. I just didn't know what to do though. It's like I have to listen to her. She's gonna tell. You know. Then her so mom weird. caught on. And How old was she? She was three years older than me. So she was nine. Something like that. You know, I, I know this idea like kids will be kids. Though. But it, it shaped I mean? my like it. It might sound like not so bad to people listening. You know, an older girl takes advantage of a younger boy, but. What I experienced was a sexual experience at the age of six years old. So now I knew what the female thing looked like and what you're supposed to do and everything. And it's like, now I have a skewed view of all that. And I was sexual after that. As kids, you know, wanting to mess around with other kids at eight and nine. And it's like, that definitely affected me. And it affected the way I treated women. And I brought that up in treatment. And I finally talked about it. And I was pouring out tears. Because the guy said, Chris, yeah, you were raped, bro. You know, don't downplay that. You were raped, bro. She was like, so she was nice. So you have to think, like, what would compel a nine-year-old to do that? Yes. Because there's no like, a, I have there never talked to her since, but I assume she probably went through some things herself. She would have to. Like, there's no way there's a she weird random curiosity that just is bred out of nowhere. And so as I've spoken about this story and many others and things, like, I have had a lot of people share that they've gone yeah. through similar things. And it might be, like, in treatment, it was a guy, you know, his uncle made him do all these things and, and this and that. I'm like, wow, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that. And they all looked at me like, well, what have you had to deal with? And I was like, well, I started bringing that up. And then yes. it was... It set, started to set me free, and then I could work on, you know, that herd, and then how I how that manifested on how I treated women. I, I, I began to change a lot of things, and just to see how everything contributed to my addiction and everything. Yeah, and I'm and I thank you for like going into these dark areas, like because it kind of embodies tragedy. It just does. Yes, it is. You, you know, and it, what it does is, is it reminds me of situations in my life where people I've I've run into and and things I've witnessed. And at one point in time, you know, it's like we always think we have it really bad, right? Like my life experiences are were terrible to me because that's my reference point. Exactly. But I've met people and I listen to their stories. I'm like, wow, you like you were, you know, repeatedly sexually abused and you know trafficked like your your dad. So like, there's some really dark stuff that's Absolutely. been on this show. And there was a, I had a conversation years ago. I was in a feelings group uh, at a local treatment center. And, you know, we're talking about those areas of abuse, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And one of my uh, group mates uh, from Africa, uh, you know, his parents moved to the United States, expats. And while he was there, his, uh, you know, like his mom and dad, or like his dad did something, like they were never home. And they were like really, it was a village idea. And one of the neighbor, the village guys would would make him do stuff with his dog, right? Oh, Which goodness. is really dark, right? right? Right. And he hated this guy, and he hated that dog because anytime the guy would come around with the dog, he knew something, you know, like it was right. You know, like it was, something was going to go on. So he lit a dog on this dog on fire. He tried to kill the dog because that way he could save himself from ever having to do anything. The dog lived. So now you got a dog that's completely messed up, like burnt. But and he's getting in trouble for doing this, but he can't, you know, like no one's really believing him. They think and you're like listening to these things, and I'm like, no wonder. Like how dark, how terrible this is. And this is the same like communities with like genital mutilation. I mean, he's going through all these different things. Mm -hmm. You can't even fathom that. Nope. Not even like it's just like how many layers of ugly does it like this evil exists in our world in such a strong amount that it's and people aren't willing to talk about out of shame or guilt. Or Especially, what, like, the priests taking advantage of, of people saying, and dude. stuff. Like, like And these people hate God. Like, can you blame them? Right. This guy's representing him and supposed to be the one you go to. He's he's not representing him the no. right way. That's the thing. And and 
all the stuff that God put me through, I put in quotes, he was doing to strrengthen me. And right. in order to, or allowed be able to, help. to happen, I don't know if God puts us through anything. I think He allows. Yeah, that's a. Out. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the same thing as what I want to say. Right. Yeah. Like no, I mean it's a. But he's ne- he never thing. leaves us. He's there the whole time. Because people can easily make the argument: if God's so real, why does He let terrible things happen? And you know what? That's beyond my understanding. To get a and, good understanding of that, you can read the Bible. The Old Testament's full of that stuff because the New Testament's all lovey dovey and grace and Jesus, which is awesome. But the God of the Bible is still in the Old Testament, too. And he did some pretty wild, wild stuff. Right. Yeah, he's a God. You yeah, can't understand uh, his ways, but. That's a different show. Oh, so, for sure. Um, <laughs> and no, I just, you you sparked something in me. And one thing that I want to make very clear in, in this is, you know, and I often talk about, you know, like I have a deeply personal relationship with God in my understanding. I do. And that's mine. And. Uh, you have yours. And some people, I would never just assume that they are on the same page with that. I have yes. listeners that are like, this is such BS. And I respect that too. Because uh, the way I look at it is that my God's in everything. He's in the ugly, the good, everything in between. And mm-hmm. I just have barely scratched the surface and more is constantly revealed to me. But within that, I believe that we're both here as a result of that. And yes. the call to action has to be, there's some similarity. It's there. a relationship thing, not a religion so, thing. So to get back though, to your story, cause we did, we've, we've deviated and I love that. I love deviating from things mm-hmm. and getting a better understanding of like the things you went through. Now going back to this first experimentation with smoking weed in middle school or is it high school? High school. High school Added with the a new, kid, new school, doing it, loving it. <laughs> Did this become a regular part of your routine in uh, life? Absolutely. So, And we started stealing it from my stepdad, who had oh, well. good stuff. And he caught me on the phone, like, yeah, I stole some more of my stepdad shit. I'm going to come up there soon. And my mom went off on me, like, you know Dave just heard everything you just said. And he had been, like, hiding his stash. Yeah, moving it around because, you know. And I, mean, I he's folded up stop. back the same way. Um, but then we just started calling it SDS, stepdad shit. That's really funny. <laughs> Hey, man, you got some SDS? SDS. Well, he would would call. This is before we had cell phones and text messaging. AOL. We did have AOL. So SDS, question mark? Yes. And (laughs) never, like, they didn't And so, like, well, one of my friend's older brothers was, like, more into, you know, he was an older guy and could get, we could get acid and ecstasy came out, the rolls. How old are you? I'm 37. I'm well. So I'll be 37 next month. Okay, we're basically the same age. Yes. Grew up. Did you graduate year 2000 type thing? 2001. Okay, so we're very close in mm-hmm. age. And you're in high school. The rave with, scene pops that's up. That's what I'm saying. I already know. I Did was you big part get of that. involved with all that? At when I turned 18, 17 through 12, yeah, for a long time. It was time. pretty wild. It was in a, I mean, because it was a lot <laughs> of fun. <laughs> And oh, not shoot. like, you know, we're, going, we're pretty... going here. I haven't really talked about all this. Like, let me tell you something. I was exposed to ecstasy. The first time I tried it, it didn't work. Okay. It probably was bunk or mm-hmm. whatever. So I was doing that whole acting like, oh, yeah, I feel different thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I thought that was just because, you know, you can convince yourself a lot of things. Hey, yeah, the placebo. It, the placebo effect's very real. Yep. But everybody else is like next level. Eyes are like rolling around their skulls and this their and that. Their pupils are the size of the dimes. first time, so I met a guy who lived out in Millville, actually. And he was, he got it from like the cartel type thing. I didn't realize how bad this thing was. Like my first experience doing it, I'll actually tell two. One experience was buying it with him and going to this guy's house where armed guards with like 
full, you know, like submachine guns and bags of it. And it was frightening, frightening. This regular. That's this next level stuff. Like right why at, at 18 years old too, right? Yeah. I had no business being there. I remember walking in like that vibe. You feel like this is purely evil, but you're walking in there and seeing these giant Ziploc bag full of like different color stuff pills you see on TV. and weed and this and money and guys like, you know, it's like, if you don't give me my money, you know, like it was, a, it was a business deal. I don't know why I'm there. You know, but I'm trying to act cool and tough and like looking at these guys with guns and stuff. That was my first experience realizing that, you know, organized crime was a real thing. And I definitely wasn't going to tell anybody. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Because it kind of felt like cool in a way, like, damn, I got a chance to experience this. And, you know, when, when you're get, given, handed, you know, 500 pills at one time that, you know, and you could sell them at the time for $30 a piece, like it was insane. Stupid money. Right. But uh, so we got involved in that for a bit. But the first time I tried it and it worked, I was hanging out with that same guy because he was dealing drugs, and he brought me in. I started dealing him too. wasn't very good at it because I was always giving, trying to give people a deal, and like because I was always on him. You know yeah, what I mean? you're messed so up. Oh, sure, just, take two. I'm just like loving everybody. <laughs> and uh, but the first time I took it, I'm in the basement. He just PlayStation Two had just come out. You know, it, like nobody had him. He did though, and I'm playing it. I put it on. You know, or I took the the ecstasy. And they're starting to get real nauseous. I'm like heaving, heaving, heaving. All of a sudden, like things are really changing. Oh, yeah. You know, they, you know, like, and we know the euphoria, like next level euphoria, you know, having a night, listening to music, doing all sorts of wild stuff, drinking orange juice to keep, you know, like all those things yeah. that they tell you. And it got to the point where it was really late. Everybody else, had, you know, they were doing something. I'm laying downstairs and I start to hallucinate. And I think uh, it was. Uh, this girl that came over that everybody said was a witch, right? And I believed it. And she was there, and all of a sudden, I hear this, like, really evil voice, like, get out of their house, like that, and doors are slamming and, tripping, and stuff. Basically. And I'm tripping, I'm freaking out. I'm putting, like, everybody else is asleep at this point in time. Like, we have been doing this stuff on air. They're just, like, laying, like, maybe missing music, and the, everything's flashing, and the doors are slamming. I'm, like, hiding under a blanket because I thought I was going to get killed. I thought, genuinely, this lady brought evil into the household, and something was about to go down. It was heavy, but I loved it. You know, I loved all, you know what I mean? The rush. It's hard to imagine. Like you can't I mean, replicate that feeling like that. And you didn't know it existed. No. And you're like, wow. You know, like, what is serotonin? Like, when you realize, like, what this is actually doing to your body, and mm. it makes sense. Like, all the feel good. But it's yeah, also people get addicted to that, and then they can't feel good on a regular way. Like they well, that's can't... always thing that come down. People seem to forget about that next day, and just being like, "I hate life." Yeah, because your dopamine's about... depleted. Yeah, You're nothing. not producing it right now. I, and... I had a sales job too, and I remember trying to sell cell phones, and I am just—it's bad. I didn't sleep at all because you know I've been high all night. My that my next morning you had to go to work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just sitting there like just. Like numb to it all, like hours just you know feels like they're minutes. You, you know, feel like click, you need something else click, to pick you up, click, probably. Click. Well, yeah, and that's when I started abusing uh, Ritalin. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, we can unpack that whole thing. I'll have to write about it. But but my yeah, ex- so the '90s were full of ecstasy and acid too for us. You know the the little gels and the blotter and then sugar cubes. Mm-hmm. And so after teenage years, I quit experimenting with all the hallucinogens for the most part. But alcohol, alcohol is my my favorite. And that stayed through, like, when you, did you start drinking in high school, right? Yeah. Did you ever it, drink gin? Really, when I was about a junior is when I started drinking a lot. Because we sat around, smoke pot, maybe take sips of our parents' And you're not really getting in trouble, though, no, right? Nope. So no one's really saying anything. 
There weren't really any issues. I got trouble. I got caught with a bull uh, paraphernalia, and I was 18, so they took my license for six months. Oh, the, the law did. Not yeah, so I started getting in little bits of trouble, not much, enough to piss my mom off. I was getting in trouble at school all the time. Okay. Uh, detentions. I got in school fights. Fight. Oh, wow. Sophomore year, I had the bloodiest fight in school history. It was pretty rough. I, uh, no. I well, Kayvon, the guy Kayvon, his buddy um jumped in after I had knocked him out. It was it was brutal. It really shouldn't have happened. But I came from Princeton where we don't talk shit. We just right, actually just do, do things. Yeah, I get that. And these guys all walk around talking shit. I'm like, exams just got over. I can miss a few days. Hold my books. And he's like, Really? I'm like, hold my fucking books. Right. And that was it. And it was all on camera as you could see it again and there's blood all over girls' dresses. He had knocked my teeth through my lip, split my eye. It was pretty rough. But, yeah, I, I was getting in trouble like that. My mom wasn't very happy, but, you know, she could tell that she couldn't really control me anymore. And so she kind of just well, she went. It doesn't seem like she was able to control you for a while, though. Really, yeah. you were doing it, not getting yeah. any issues, but it just kept and I, getting... Back to my mom and, and the things she kind of put me through. Like, I, I definitely wasn't a, a little saint as a kid either. Like, I... I pushed the buttons and stayed out too late and stuff like that. Maybe didn't deserve what I got, but she wasn't like this evil person or anything. She was just very frustrated, took it out on me, but it was, it was definitely painful for myself. I get it. And so growing up and, and having all these nice things now, finally, they're making good money. We have a tanning bed and, and a gym in the basement, a gazebo and a hot tub outside and a sauna we imported from Holland and like bought my first three cars like they paid for them and you know very grateful for that kind of stuff and it's almost like this money we're trying to make up for all the crap you know it puts you through and all this stuff almost and it's just like yeah this is nice but something just still never felt right inside you were just never complete and uh, or at least from struggled with identity big time moving schools back and forth and then trying to fit in with the skateboard kids i wasn't a very good skateboarder i tried you just wanted to go <laughs> against the grain though really yeah it's like I, you well i had thing. Uh, issues with authority oh, yeah i questioned it all and then um my first dui i got when i was 22 and that's when i really got in trouble and had to you know did you go base. to college or anything i did go to uc so you went to uc i, was no, the I just first don't want to miss these things but like i was the first skinner to go to college okay i i took a year off after high school and me and me both what There's i wanted no party. to do <laughs> then i sat in with my girlfriend's class like i was dating a, i always dated older girls i liked hmm. the, the older crowd and so I sat in one of her classes in college, and I'm like, I like this. I want to come. And so I went. My mom was paying for college for me. And then the second semester, she lost her realtor's license, stuck. I, she couldn't pay my bill. And so I'm like, I can't go back to school until I pay my bill. So I started hustling. That's when I really started dealing. I was uh, it was pot. But then anything, I could get my hands on mushrooms, get mushrooms by the pounds, and you, you triple your money off that stuff. And it's like so I'm, you were so you go from being kind of uh, your high school most memorable stuff was what really the fight the you know partying a lot partying. So you weren't like academically of, next level. Like you were just barely. I was straight by. A's until high school. Then well, I yeah. said, "Fuck it, I don't care about this." And stuff. that's what I'm getting. Like so, all of these things that have shaped who you who you have become. You were rebellious. Mm -hmm. You were experimenting with drugs, but you ended up in college. 
went there for a year. Your mom wasn't able to pay, so you ended up, you know, finding hustling. Being... And then I paid the bill, and I went back to school. So I'm saying, so now you're dealing and I'm going trying, to school. I am trying to be a successful person, basically. And I didn't know what it looked like, really. Like, I don't want to sell cars like my stepdad does. And right. my dad. I be my own man. You know, but then I started hustling and seeing all this money come through. And it's like, I don't need a college degree. I'm making six figures right now, tax free. It was crazy. I'm selling weed to all the rich kids, you know, and I'm getting unlimited amounts sent down from Canada. We we had a we had a plug. How was that facilitated? I'm curious. Without giving too much, uh, well, I mean, you know, statute of limitations. A buddy of mine bumped into somebody that had access or hundreds of pounds of access up in Canada. We called them beasters. Yeah. Did you ever smoke the beasters? Yeah. I Absolutely. was bringing those in like crazy. Because this didn't exist back then. Right. Like weed how it is today. And you was... take all the risk. Obviously, you're risking going to prison for this stuff. But the money that's coming through is stupid. Plus, so were you going to Canada or were you staying no, here? So it was I didn't coming go. across the border. Mm-hmm. in Can- like, And then you were given weight. It was given to were... me on consignment. Yeah. Basically. Then I, you know, get rid of it, pay it back. And then, bam, left with lots of money. Did and you ever so... have any f- scary run-ins that could have gotten you? Like, uh-huh. Give me one of those. I was pulled over. I was because I've been over. pulled over with weed, and by the grace of God, didn't go. Yeah. Well, like I had a of. duffel bag full of forty five thousand dollars. Okay. All wrapped up in stacks. It was forty five stacks. I just counted it. It took a couple hours, but I was going to pay my guy back, and I blew through a stop sign, mm. and a, there was no cops around. But all of a sudden, whoop whoop, right behind me, I'm like, oh great. Not only, like, if he finds this, it's getting confiscated or getting in trouble somehow, but, like, these guys are going to want their money. Yeah. You know, so. But, no, I got out of it. He just gave me a little ticket let me go. You're but, like, old time, you're sweating bullets. You got this money on you. Yeah, then I go back to bumping Tupac and fuck the police and, you know. But I was just like, oh, praying to God real quick, like, please, you know. So I, I'd been to church and everything, did my little, you know, uh, backseat prayers and stuff like that, but yeah, I definitely didn't follow God or anything like that. No, this whole and that's time not my was... point, dude. My, I'm curious just for the stories themselves, mm-hmm. um, and to, to paint a picture for a listener and say, "Wow, all right, so you found yourself in these situations. Now you're selling uh, drugs." Mm-hmm. As I still a, haven't gotten in big trouble yet. Well, that's what I mean. You, you know, so nothing I, to force me to like look at my life yet. No, know? and why? And I always say in these shows, like it's not bad until it is, because in a lot of ways. You're yes. making do and, you know, it's exciting and you get to have, you know, you have to have get, get to have good weed and get people like you and people are showing you attention because you're a dealer. I had a fake ID also. So did I. So I get I it. go buy you whatever. Go, I did what get saying. caught buying a keg with a fake ID at Party Source. Down and across spent, the river? Yes. Right? I spent a day and a half in Bellevue Jail. That was the worst jail I've ever been in. I, but, uh, I had a fake ID for a long time. Um... I had it was given to me by another buddy of mine who ran a gas station, and I used it, and it was awesome. And I really didn't even have to because I was a bouncer and bar back down downtown Cincinnati at a couple clubs. So there I was already, uh, I was already there anyway. Warehouse, all these places to like three, four in the morning, experimenting, doing cocaine, trying, you know, doing X, all of it. And then one of my fake, there would be a couple clubs that I couldn't get into without it, the ones that weren't directly in the circle. Mm-hmm. So once that got taken away, I was like, oh, that sucks. And so I got to figure this out. And and that's why you become buddy, buddy, or sell weed or whatever to the doorman. So, yeah, I never had an issue really getting in the club. I remember being pissed because my, my really great fake ID was gone. 
Yeah. But it all worked out. It was usually trying to get the other guys in, in you know, and uh, they don't make it. They want you to leave and go home with them. And no, I'm staying. I made it in. Right. <laughs> no. I mean, looking back, I think this is a lot of these things, not necessarily the selling drugs part, but the partying is a rite of passage for a lot of Americans. Most like, people, well, you... they'll party and then they'll put it down and go on That's to what I mean. be so successful. It's like when you party, college times are the time to do all the dumb stuff. That way you get out of your system. But... I'm guessing some of it, us just don't stop. That's the, my point. Some of us go home and do it on the weeknights alone. Yeah, we can't stomach. Ourselves. Did you find you you were different than the people you were hanging out with when it came to yes. that early on? Uh, I was definitely more wild, um, but I wanted to party through the week too, like not just you know and they weren't on weekends and stuff, like out at college parties and stuff like that. And they partied throughout the week. Gotcha. So I, I partied down in Clifton a lot. My girlfriend lived down there. Woody's and, and you know, uh, yeah, the Stratford block parties on. Yeah. Uh, uh, I lived on Chickasaw Mayo, for a while, where we would light the couches on yeah. fire. Did I was you do there. That too? I was there. Yeah, my yeah. buddy got uh, charged with inciting a riot down there. I almost like crazy. there was a night, dude. I but that had was a, that was was fun. We tried to do that every night. Gaslight District was like, wild. Uh, what's the pint night? You know where they're Papadinos? Just, did you hang yeah. out there? Yeah, they yeah. serve pizza till four in the morning, so you go there all liquored up and it was gotten fights. Dude, there. that was actually a lot of fun. When I look back at that time in my life and and hanging out in Clifton and going to all those different places. Yeah, it there was is cool. a saying in recovery that I don't like, like uh our worst day in recovery is better than our best day. It's not I'm, true. No, it, it's not. I know what they mean by that. But no, I had a lot of good times. I had a lot of really good times. But, but then the after thing, those good times, you know, Stop, they weren't good anymore. No. And I kept trying to make them good and dragging other people through my misery. And it's like, no, I have to go home. I have work in the morning. Yeah. I can't do Coke with you all night long. So, yeah, <laughs> 22 years old, though, getting in trouble, mm-hmm. get driving drunk, right? Yep. Uh, you get arrested. Mm-hmm. What was that first experience like with getting a DUI? I was extremely wasted. And since we know about my dealing, I had $3,500 cash on me. Oh, and so they're like, it in my car. And they're like, what is this? I denied it. I was so drunk person that came up to pick me up said I was yelling at these cops and telling them to go spend that money on their wives. Ooh. Go buy your wife a Valentine's Day dress. It was around Valentine's Day. I was asking for it. They were yeah. pretty easy on me. But I admitted to being messed up, so I couldn't beat that charge at all. I got it. I got the yellow plates. I was like the second guy to ever get the yellow plates. Ooh, a little scarlet letter. Yeah, and I had a pearl white Tornado. It was a pretty nice car. I've been through 29 vehicles. A Tornado, like Volkswagen? Oldsmobile. Oh, I'm thinking Coronado. Pearl White, it's kind of like a Cadillac. I know what you mean. Now I know exactly what you're talking about. GM, you know, but yeah, I've wrecked that one too. Um, But no, my second DUI was one of the worst. And it's sad that I have to say one of the worst because there's so many. But the second one, I was leaving a bar in Westchester. It was a year later. And it was St. Patrick's Day. One year later after your first one, you're getting another one. I think it was. You had these plates too? No, I only had a nine-month driving suspension because I had plenty of money. I hired a good attorney. Um, But I admitted on tape that I was drunk to the detective, basically, about the money thing. Like, I'm drunk. I don't know why I said that. Okay, well, you just you can't beat that now. So I had to hire a good attorney. I didn't get in much trouble. I did the little three-day program Mm -hmm. that I speak at now. Um, But then... After I got off probation and everything, like, it was just back to doing what I was doing. St. Patrick's Day, I'm mostly Irish, so that's what we do. I mean, you're also an alcoholic, so, like, this is your Irish alcoholic, St. Patrick. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to leave that bar, but my 
the mother of my son showed up there and we were, she was pregnant. Okay. And when she got pregnant, we weren't together. So it was really tough. I was very bad. Like I wasn't a good partner. But, you know, we had been through a lot ourselves. I met Sharon at a, a keg party in, in Clifton. So we were kind of messy, but we had fun and stuff. But she shows up. I'm dancing with another girl. She slaps me. And so I leave, and I back into this car, and I take off down the road. Oh, hit and run, too. And I hit a guardrail going 60. And the airbag deployed, broke my nose. I had I had some money in the car, I ran out of the car and took off down the road. My friend, gosh, this is one bad situation. It was horrible. My friend picked me up because he had followed me out of there. Like, what are you doing? Then he took me back because he was scared. He was he was a EMT. He was scared to lose his license. So I get back there and the cops are there looking for me in the woods. They thought I flew out. It was so serious. Blood all over me. Um, I ended up blowing a point three two seven that night. To get the thousand dollars back, they wouldn't give me my thousand bucks back. I always got cash in the car, but yeah, that was a year later, and so another year goes by. That this one, I got ten days in jail, thirty six on house arrest, but I totaled a six thousand dollar car. I just paid cash for, and it was gone. I didn't have full coverage. So another year goes by, and I get my third. And you'd think at this point I was celebrating being off probation for the second. I get it. What, yeah, I mean, what would compel I made it anybody? All the way. I people made it. don't get this. And yeah. I'm going to make this very clear. I get it. You get it. People that are in recovery understand because this is a huge similarity that sure. we have. That's just like this is what having the disease of addiction looks like or alcoholism. But you get a DUI, 22, then 23, then 24, mm-hmm. back to back to back. Each time was going to be in celebration of something. You still felt as though, and I'm, I'm going to assume, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you could handle it now yeah. and it would be okay or whatever that you didn't really have a problem or if you did i just kept getting caught right it's like just leave me alone like i'm yeah. part like i'm a kid i'm a young adult i'm trying to have a time in my life here you know whatever it is but you're having situation after situation that are really bad and by the grace of god are having good attorneys and having the money because of selling drugs you're able to get out of them out of trouble, essentially. Yeah. Right. Well, I really should have went for like six months or something. And I get that. And that's, but it's not your story. Right. right? So when we could say that we could come up with but all sorts of things. That's why I change. Well, that's the thing. So you get just those slaps on the wrist. And this is a huge problem collectively. A lot of times what tends to happen, and, you know, and there's an argument both ways, right? Like we, we do believe, and I do agree with the idea that we shouldn't be locking people with addictions up, really. We should for a short period of time so they can sober up for Absolutely. a moment, send them the treatment. That's about as far as I think it should go because really you're sitting – if you're in jail with a bunch of other people who don't have their act together, you know, no tools when you leave, you're going to go out and do the same thing. Whether – you know I mean? The majority of the time, rarely do I run to someone that are like, yeah, I went to jail for a couple months and was like, that's it. It happens but not – That's what I'm saying. So like let's My prepare people. My experiences are we come out and become better criminals. Yeah. It's a criminal school. That's what I'm saying. Because so you have to you... act tough in there and everything, but yeah. So when I would do my 10 days in jail, it was just gambling. We would find ways to get pills somehow and You're still selling drugs, too. Yes. So it's just like, whatever. So you yeah. were just like, Well, there's this guys was... in there that owed me money from selling drugs. It's like, give me my money. You right. know, it was just like an old reunion almost. It wasn't a correctional facility. Gosh, dude, it's supposed like, to be a correctional really... facility, but it's not. No, and I, and right. And we we all know that, like, how effective are jail? How effective well, are they? Well, the really? numbers will sell it all. It's like 2% yeah. ever get rebuilt. I mean, we just, the recidivism is high and all these other things. And once it's you're hard in the system, enough to get 
clean anyways and recover and stay. It's one out of 10 of us. That was a, another big reason I wanted to start something because I hated those numbers and I didn't accept them. Right. Well, but you don't it's have reality, to. though. You know, it really yes. is. And, and locking everybody true. up has not solved the problem. The war on drugs has no. just been a war on a bunch of broken people that are using yeah. drugs, really. Yeah, and uh, attacks on uh, minorities and all these sorts of other things. Let's just lock them up. And, you know, uh, a lot of times people assume because if they can't see the problem firsthand that it doesn't exist. But it means like, if they were exposed to the ugliness of our uh, jail system, they would. I mean, like as I had some terrible experiences in jail and there's nothing you can do about them getting beat up, you know, treated like a dog. I mean, just all of Neglected it. Like it's, time, yeah, it's yeah. like there's so many ugly Fed things. Crap. But now your third one, you're in front of a judge again. We convinced, I had hired an attorney, another, you know, good attorney, and he's he no longer practices law. But he, he lied to the judge and convinced the judge it was only my second DUI. And how the heck did you do that? He, while well, he pulled me to the side, we went when there was a magistrate. Gotcha. And the guy knew nothing about me. Um, it was in Westchester, and I show up looking all nice and everything. We're going to agree to the – and after it was over with, he had found out, and you could hear the judge in the back chambers yelling at my attorney. But it was – the the ruling already came down. You yeah. can't go back on it. Right. But um, I knew, obviously, I couldn't be going around drinking and driving after that. I'm like, the next one's a felony no matter what. And uh, I still had substance abuse issues. I was on Xanax. And I didn't get on it legally at first. I was just taking them, you know, buying them from friends and stuff like that, and eventually got on them from a doctor. Well, that probably also encouraged your I don't I don't give a f. It was basically like, right? well, I'm already on these. Basically, I know they work, so why don't you just write me a script for them? And I had a very good way of talking. God's given me the gift of gab, right? And I definitely well, also you're manipulation manipulating that situation to get what you want. I mean, yep, right. So I was on the Xanax, and then I would dabble with, you know, other pills and things, but I wouldn't say that I was hooked. Definitely wasn't on opiates yet. Now, after that, I was labeled a habitual alcoholic by the state of Ohio. Okay. It's a, it's a, well, it's true. Yes, and it, it also took away some of my rights, and I didn't really like know what that. Like type? Can't own a gun. Gotcha. So when I got raided back in 2008, they found a half pound of marijuana and a pistol— and they indicted me on that twice. So I was facing 11 years in prison. Wow. Yeah. And they took it back. Remember that bowl that I got caught with at 18? Mm-hmm. They charged me with weapons under disability for that. So they hated me. They knew I dealt drugs, but they couldn't catch me doing that because no one would tell on me for whatever reason. Um, I tried to instill fear in people and, you know, that tough. I watched Sopranos, and I wanted to model my organization after Tony Soprano, basically, without okay. all the killing and stuff. I didn't, you know. Nothing that no, far. You're just... But I wanted to put the fear in them that it would happen. You tell on me, bro. You, you know, your house is going to get burnt down. Like, it, that's just not an option. You go do your time. And so it all worked out like that. But when that happened, I was facing serious time, finally. You know? And I thought I was at least going to do a few years. I, the mother of my son, would not really let me see him at the time. I didn't blame her. Um, but we had gone through a bad breakup. It officially ended. Like we tried to stay together for the boy. Yeah, it just wasn't working. I came from a broken home, so I knew so it was you're better like, to yeah. not grow up in one. I'm like, let's just end this. And yeah. still always there for my boy and stuff, but I wasn't there for myself at this time. Right. When people use dope and they combine it with Xanax, they're more likely to die, right? Because mm-hmm. it slows your breathing mm-hmm. and um, you know, you start getting I just saw something like I my- remember Anna Cole Smith's son died that way. 
You so, know, she was one of my, I like I was obsessed with her. But their son died, and it was just Xanax and a couple of football. It was, I'm it was like, a couple of Roxies, basically. Well, what I mean is, so people that don't like you're not. It's mixing those two things together is insanely dangerous. Yep. And it's crazy to me. I had a guest on here, Justin Hurst, a couple episodes back. That went to, did the pill mill thing, and he mm-hmm. got prescribed, you know, Roxaset, which are, you know, we know the stronger. That was my DOC. Percocet, and then was with with Xanax and muscle relaxers. And I'm thinking, you know, they're giving him these insane amounts every day. And, you, you know, to ride this pharmaceutical wave and to keep yourself alive at the same time is crazy to me because people die on a lot less. And I think it's individual to individual. And it could be whatever circumstance you could have. Let's say you're asthmatic or whatever. And then you're just gone. And then some people are like, dude, you know, they've I've seen guys. I've seen guys take, you know, uh, 10 you know, to 20. Million. I've seen people do that, eat a handful. And it's just baffling. It's like, how on earth did you make it through when that? When I was real strung out, I, it would take 10 Vicodins just to feel well, it. Well, I know that. I know that Vicodin part in Percocet. I, I was not a drug addict, I would say, at this point. I mean, I might have always been one, but I wasn't. You were a drug dick- abuse. I was abuser. Yeah. I wasn't addicted to them. I didn't go through withdrawals or anything, but I had access to them, and it was a very easy way out for me, I was thinking. But then you, after that, I regretted it, and I realized like I really didn't want to die. I just wanted to find some resolution to these did problems. Did the eight other people contact you after they woke up? Well, one of them was my mom, and she was I almost gave her a heart attack. You're like, Mom, is this... So know. I was like, you know what? I just got to man up. If I got to go to prison, I'll just do my prison time. I'm, yeah. I, I've made my bed. I need to lay in it. If my son doesn't want to ever see me again, like, I'll I'll deal with all of that. Okay. But... What happened? I pled to two felonies and got five years probation. Unreal. Three... Well, it was intense probation. The I guy get it. came I, to I my... Mean, an intense probation is where they want you to see him rehab once a week. Or... I had to go to, through outpatient rehab. So you did an in, intensive outpatient rehab, drug screenings, had to see your probation officer how often, once or twice a month? Seen you know him twice mean? a month. For a long time. Called once a week, and then he would come out once a week. To make sure you're doing what you're doing. <clears throat> I, have a crazy, so I have a crazy story that would have landed me in my... two. I had two and a half years of prison time over my head. Okay. So my PO comes out. To, I, was, I lived back with my stepdad. They had divorced and everything, but I was allowed in the house to do whatever I wanted. And I had a bunch of Opana broken up on my table upstairs in my room. Oxymorphone, right. And my friend comes over. He's going to, you know, buy some. And right behind him is my PO. There he is with another cop guy and Tom. And I'm like, oh, my goodness gracious. So what do we do here? And I was obliterated out of my mind. But we had big dogs, St. Bernard's, Bulldogs. So I was letting them run around, and he didn't want to be there long. So I take him upstairs, and I show him my stepdad's bedroom. (laughs) Here it is. Take a look. If you would have walked in my room, I'd be toast. New charges, prison time, all of it. So I narrowly escaped that one. So they walk in. You have drugs on the table? In my room on the desk, oh, yeah. in your room, but you were downstairs, and you yes, took him into your stepdad. Yes, the whole house dad. didn't, it was my room was a drug den. Gotcha. And if he would have went in there, yeah. No, that's just I crazy. just narrowly escaped, and when he left, I was, like, laughing at it, mocking it. Like, it's, you know, going back to snorting more. How Opana. much did your, like, stomach drop it to, like, you just. Uh... I would love to have seen the look on my face. No. <laughs> And you're already hey. kind of hammered a little bit. But yeah, like, I would wake up and snort two Roxy's. So you were, okay, so you're riding high on pain meds. Okay, so which, you know, maybe at the time too, like, 
you know, it's funny. They just want to get in and out anyway. They want to make sure. Sometimes they open up your refrigerator, but they got a hundred other people to go see as well. Yeah. Um, and he knew my stepfather actually. So, what on earth? Yeah. Like, to let them come in your house. His stepdaughter was friends with my little sister. So okay. But he definitely. So uh, yeah, you did it was that close that. for me going to prison. I escaped prison so many times. Dude, you would have gotten another char. Everything, everything, mm-hmm. just by opening up the other door. And you, what if? The, so you want to know something funny about the forgery thing? I I forged something from Miami University saying I was going to school there because I wasn't getting a job. I was hustling and stuff. He's like, you need a job, or you need to be at school, or school, or you're going back. You're going to prison. I was okay. Jeez. Like, so I was like, I don't. You know, I got uh transcripts and stuff and uh, printed out a fake schedule and forged it all and it worked yeah you know and i just basically didn't have to do anything else and you just realized like these, a few tests i bought others i'm glad you brought that up though because a lot of times what tends to happen because i've look i have uh enough technical savvy to forge things and i have on many occasions uh in a lot of different situations in mm-hmm. my life so that i could avoid actually having to do something yeah and it worked uh but it's not it, it was just perpetuating the issue right all I was trying to avoid was getting in trouble. Same right. thing with you. And it's like, why I could have spent that much energy, the amount of time it took to forge, I could have actually been doing something proactive. I just didn't want to. Yeah. So, like, so let's pick up the time frame here. So now you're on probation, serious probation, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're using there too on it, right? So I after, well, yes. And then uh, taking those drinks for the drug test to pack the drug Well, that's test. what I was going to ask. Like, but how yeah, are you avoiding? I couldn't stomach myself. I still couldn't stomach myself. You weren't myself. working a program of recovery. You were just trying. So, like, legitimately, you did an intense outpatient. You were bullshitting your way through that. I got on the Xanax legally at that point. So you were so able. So I could take the Xanax. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so you know, these things are important. Yes. Like, I need to paint this picture of what your life looks like and what what. You're just like on a constant path of destruction your Absolutely. entire life and not being held account really held accountable for things for whatever reason, you know, the gift of gab that's getting you out of it or, yep. you, you know. Uh, Having some money to throw at the attorneys. That's what I'm saying. But even when. I never had to face the true music. That's what I mean. So They got wh- put off, put off, put off, put off. And now all that's part of my testimony, but. Yeah, I much rather would have got clean and sober. Be a lot and I get sooner. that. But you just, but that's not your story. So I'm just trying to understand how this time works. You almost get in trouble, you know, like you show them one door and you, you know, convince them that that was that. You're forging stuff too. Uh, you are doing, uh, you know, these uh, drinks to clean out your system so you can do the drug test that are masking agents and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you and do they that. worked every time. They worked. How long did you do that? Two years. Two years you did mm-hmm. that. And, and then, they, what then they let me off. They let me they off let you off early. Because I paid. They, and they did you celebrate money. that? Uh, for sure. I'm trying to think uh, where I was exactly living. I got a job with my friend at Urban Active Fitness. Mm-hmm. It was before it became LA Fitness. And I was doing really well. Um, I mean, you say you're doing really well. You were still on drugs. At that time, just pot, I would say, at that at that point than so the Xanax. Still... The Xanax in the pot. Okay. Yes. I was well, I was trying to become a productive member of society, but that it's very short lived and you're gonna see why. Uh I mean how much time would you string together like that? You said two years. A couple months did... or so. Okay. So no like real time. It would always be something else. Like I became the manager of of Urban Active Fitness. I would say I had a good year there. Okay. And That's fair. I was hiding certain uses very well. Well, yeah, you're still in the middle drugs, of that. But... I got in a wreck 
It was a hit and run. It was not my fault for once. And I ended up getting Percocet from the doctor. And okay. it was, I was taking them for the pain for sure because I had a dislocated elbow too. I got hit with a bat after a bar. And so I was on multiple pills, loving it. I was I was out of it. And I was a manager, had a good job. And so once those pills ran out, I started feeling sick. This is when I first started to know I'm addicted, really. Okay. You know, those Vicodins I was buying from my buddy, you know, only yep. do so much, but definitely contributed to my opiate use. But it, gravi- it, it, it gravitated. Like, it, it got bad quick. And so I went to urgent care thinking that I was having the flu. Mm-hmm. I genuinely didn't know I was going through withdrawal. So I get to urgent care, and the lady's just looking at me really funny, like, you've been taking opiate pain pills? And I'm like, yeah, but how do you know that? I didn't tell you that. Are right. you, are you, what else do you know about me, lady? You know? She's like, you're going through withdrawal, opiate withdrawal. And I'm like, uh, I didn't do heroin, lady. I know that does that. Because right. I saw it on the Basketball Diaries, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. That's where I saw that. I'm like, I'm never doing that. Right, never doing that. that. I'm never doing that. But I was doing that in a different form and didn't realize what it was doing to me. Because I wasn't just taking my pills as prescribed. I was coming across other people, sharing them, trading them. and then. But it came time for them to be done. I'm like, all right, I need to stop all this stuff. And you know, then I'm sick. And then she's like, yeah, you're, you're going through withdrawals. So she didn't tell me, like, you can go get help for this. You can go to detox for this. Basically, I'm not giving you any more pills, junkie. You need to get out of here without saying those words. Right. But I can, like, looking back and reflecting, that's what she was concerned about. Trying me trying to get more pills. So I didn't get anything, but I went to my friends who had the Opanas and the Roxies, and basically, like, if I just keep doing this stuff, I'm not going to feel that way. Interesting. And that continued for a good year and a half, two years. Every day. Every single day, because I had the money to do it, I got fired from Urban Active. Because Pneumonia, and that was drug-induced, but I was missing so much work, but I had doctor's notes, and so I sued them, and I won $10,000 and got unemployment for a year and a half. For wrongful termination? FMLA, yeah, because I had a disease. I had pneumonia. can't fire somebody when they have a disease like that. So it kind of backfired on them but really didn't do anything good for me no back just not doing still, anything you're with not life. fixing an issue you're just perpetuating it there's just it's a there's a wild thing to me about how we can continue down these paths and figure out ways to c- just keep doing it and that's what you all you were doing is just protecting this disease you didn't even recognize yep. that you had or if maybe I definitely you did. didn't want it to stop. No, that's the thing. The fun, I didn't like want the really, fun to stop. No, there was no real reason to. And you know, you're addicted and you're doing this stuff all the time. And you get fired and you're like, well, I'll show them. And, you know. And then I win. And I'm right. Like, and you're like, I, vindication. I, I, I was right. Yeah. I was right. Well, when, because, when I caused the pneumonia, because I, I snorted all my drugs. Right. I didn't inject them, but I snorted everything. And that caused me to get pneumonia and, and sick all the time and depleted, looking like a zombie. It was terrible. Okay, so now I have a great idea of what your uh, life has been like up to that point. Yes, okay? I have a, you should a, now. Yeah, and I think the listeners will too. At this point in time, after this money, you get that, I'm guessing you just spend it to for on whatever, right? Yeah. Well, I'd pay How my child support get? with it because I, you know, child support. Okay. I pay my bills with it, didn't have to work, still hustled. Yeah. So I was finding people that had a lot 
of these pills and they didn't need them. Right. So that's, I have a in-depth, like intimate look at that side too, because I sold this stuff. And I know they've been overprescribed. These people weren't even in pain. And they're getting 180 Roxy's a month. And it's like, wow. And they like, pay their mortgage with that money. Older people or what mm-hmm. was the... Mostly so, older people, yes. So just break that down real quick so we can kind of get in some other areas and, and get this to work, getting you sober. Mm-hmm. So you, for how did that come to be? That was how I got all of my pills for free, basically. Is it, I, didn't, finding, I didn't like to go piss How did you away? find people that were prescribed medications like that? Well... When you've been dealing for a while, okay, you kind of have <coughs> that circle going around, right? And all you have to do is knock on the doors, and they, they're going to send you to the right places, right? And then they realize you have money, and they, well, my cousin also has this, right? Just and like then that her way, husband they don't have also, to her husband also, and right. their brother who lives with them also, they all get these Roxies, and it's like, wow, I just saw it as you're just going to buy them all up, me and free, yeah. So you're buying them all whole, and that's, wholesale, that's basically. That's how I lived for a couple of years there, okay. and I would hold down normal jobs and stuff. I served and sold insurance and stuff. I've done the same. I sold. My goals in life were to outlive my father, and he died at 30. Okay. And so, I really didn't have any goals of to own a home or to have big family. It was just to hit that mark, really. Just to keep no... going that. That hustle lifestyle gives you that sense of respect and importance and power, but it's all false. Well, it's not yeah. real. It's a false sense of Because that just that. doesn't sound like you're li- like, unfortunately, my man, is it that like everything you've talked about so far doesn't seem like living to me. It just doesn't. And it's you were surviving. Just, it, it was surviving. Right. And, you know, like your life based around manipulations and drug abuse and, you know, avoiding uh, serious consequences as a result of your actions. Like it's just kind of like. How is that anything that we would would aspire to be? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I don't I don't want to just put that all in a box and say your life had no meaning, but it's just like there's no real direction. You're yeah, you sold insurance, you did this, you did that, and you know you had this job, you were a manager, and maybe at points in time in all of this, you thought, well, this is what I'm going to be, in, I'm, this is yeah. what I'm going to do, and it'll yeah. be okay as long as I can have this other stuff and still drinking, still smoking pot, still you know, sleeping hustling, around with girls, doing you know. whatever you want to do. How bad did it get towards the end? So we have an idea of everything leading up to this. Mm-hmm. And what was that last year like for you? The opiate addiction just spiraled out of control. I kept wanting to quit on my own. I had a girlfriend that was very supportive. She found out about my addiction cuz I we were on a little vacation and I forgot to bring my Suboxone I would take. Oh, so, so you were prescribed that too. No. Was, no, no I would buy them off the streets okay. and have them for backup, but I forgot to bring them. And on the way back, I was sitting there shaking and sweating, just like, what's going on? And I admitted it to her. She's like, all right, so what can we do to get you off? She kept trying to detox me in the apartment, back and forth. Then she'd be at work, and one of my old buddies would call me, and I'd have him stop by, and I'd be back at it again. Right. So, Because you didn't want to feel sick was the no, key thing. that was okay. the thing. And uh, so me and her... Broke up a few times. She was tired of my stuff. And I was out at a bar one night. I was three days clean on my own, but feeling like crap. And I was out drinking at the draft. And I ended up getting kicked out and ended up in Franklin, Ohio, down a street that just ended. And I kept going and I hit a tree. And my airbag didn't deploy for whatever reason. And my head hit the windshield. And I was bleeding everywhere. Long story short, I ended up in this woman's house, and she called 911. 
Ended up in the hospital, and they thought I had internal bleeding, fractured skull, all this stuff. I mean, you did serious damage to yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I rattled around like a, a pinball in there, basically. And so the next day, the doctor comes in with his arms folded, just staring at me. And I'm like, what is it, doc? Is that bad? It's like, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, actually. I'm like, so why do why you look like that? And he's like, I, you needed to learn a lesson. And I don't think you are, but God had to have saved your life. I don't know any other way to explain it, but I hope you, you know, you learn this time. And I felt God saying, yes, and I'm tired of saving your life. Like I'm not doing it anymore, basically. And I had that little moment, but he's like, well, we're going to give you something. Are you allergic to morphine? And I was like, no. When, yeah, I, I really am. I break out in handcuffs with that stuff. Right. But. So I was back on that and facing my fourth DUI. It was the first one in seven years, so I wasn't facing the penalties for the fourth one. And I was just going to go do my 20 days in jail. It was going to be at Warren County where I could just, you, could, you could get out and go to Already work now. and come back. Yeah. I was going to stuff my County. desk full of drugs. That's what I was yeah. going to do. But I was living at my sister's in her basement, and I was finally doing heroin. I was buying heroin. Um Three times, I think I bought it just to stay well. Like I, I wasn't yeah, a heroin addict. The availability of them continued to change, and they were and just so expensive. Right, I get it. And so I was snorting heroin. I had fentanyl patches on on my butt cheeks, and I wake up and I couldn't breathe. I'm sitting there gasping for air. There's people living in the house. I was trying to scream for help, and I couldn't. So I just started pumping on my chest and getting my heart to beat again, or whatever. And I came to. And I was just like, wow, because I had never overdosed or anything before. And that was the closest I came to that. And I just saw darkness. Like I felt like I was this close to going to hell, you know? Gotcha. And it was the first time I really felt like that was a reality. Were you asleep and then mm-hmm. woke up? So mm-hmm. kind of like a sleep paralysis waking up, right? Yeah. Like so it was like God didn't save demon. my life this time, yeah. but he allowed me to pump life back into myself and then I made the decision that I was actually going to go to treatment instead. Okay. And my attorney was the attorney for Woodhaven. So I went to Woodhaven and that's when some things started changing for me inside. And the guys that would come in and do the H&I meetings uh, for AA and NA and they would open up to us and share their stories and I just found some hope in their stories and like I wanted some of that. Right. And the counselors in there were in recovery. They had been through it before. So I felt safe, like I could open up to them. And I started talking about you something know, you've past. really never done before. Never, ever. Right. Never got to it. I just jumped through hoops to get certificates and stuff through yeah, IOPs. So you could avoid issues. This time I actually answered my assessment correctly. I did my assessment, was honest about it. And uh, I didn't want to hide anymore. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I know you've heard that before, but it's absolutely what <clears throat> the person needs to to feel in order to change. So the fear of staying the same outweighs the fear of change. Gotcha. And that's when that moment happened. And I stayed there for a month and got out and completed IOP. And IOP outpatient's very transforming too if you open up and it helps teach you healthy coping mechanisms for the real life without having to go put something in you. And then uh, 
You know, I, I would hit the 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, yeah, I was, things that were suggested to yeah, you. Stay out of the relationships. <laughs> I was doing all that stuff. And, um, you know, I got my first year under my belt. And I really wasn't doing any service work or anything because they said, yeah, don't worry about all that. That'll come, you know, with with. So really, they just wanted you that first year to just continue showing up, right? Mm -hmm. And just working on staying present. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just then trying to get an idea. Then I found online recovery. Okay. There was this Facebook group called New Age Recovery, and I became part of it. I was an administrator for it and got some hands-on work to help people in the community and stuff. And uh, I just wanted to start my own thing. And another one of my friends just passed, and I'm like, here, I started this group, and it was sharing it everywhere. Everyone started joining. People were asking for help. We were helping people into treatment. And then four years later, boom. You know, this now, and we feed homeless people every other weekend or every other month and stuff. And it just out of nowhere, purpose came, you know, yeah, but, you didn't have any really leading up to it. Well, I mean, I guess outside of selling drugs and keeping mm-hmm. yourself well. So tearing up <laughs> my community for a long time, I felt an obligation to help try and put it back together, hope. pay my dues. That's, that's smart. And, um, yeah, we were talking about that a little bit and, you know, now um, I put in so much work and everything like that. It's just, you know, now we're here and just trying to educate people and, and rub off on other people to find that freedom, but it takes work. You don't just go to rehab no. and then it's over. You know that you, I know you know my through. listeners. I mean, some of them do, but a lot of them just think like, why can't people stop? Like, what is it? Like that doesn't make any sense. And then you start to recognize, having gone through it, because we said this earlier, is that, you know, I used to look at, I used to look down on these people like, dude, you did this to yourself. Yeah. And all you know what, I believe that argument a lot of times. Like at one point in time, you know what I mean? I didn't have to do it, but I did it anyway. There weren't any consequences. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel better um, until it didn't. And that's when I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And that's a scary thing like yes. anything else. You, you know, and I don't want to even get into the debate of that because it's such a prevalent way. How is there so many people out there that are experiencing this? Like, you mean to tell me we're all just, like, terrible people and we all have? No, there's something to this. There's some mysticism to it, some, you know, evil components. Dark forces. There's no, it can't be that big and have us all be terrible people. It just doesn't make any sense. It's too powerful. That's what I mean. You know, like, people, you know, like, even when you hear a commercial or watch a commercial, and, you know, like people are like an alcohol commercial, right? Having the time of their lives, doing this, doing that. And that the little thing in the bomb says, please drink responsibly, right? And the reason they put in there is because people have a problem with it. You know what I mean? Sure. We, need, we, need, we do know that even people who, you know, only have a couple of drinks have overdone it too. We know people that have experimented with this or that or have gotten pain medications from their doctor. And that for a lot of us, including myself, mm-hmm. self, was the direction with it. I thought I was getting help. For an issue that I had and I trusted in somebody and that doesn't make, that doesn't remove my accountability to it. Sure. But the fact that that existed so largely in our, our community, in our country, and then you have this vast number of people who became addicted through their physicians and then taken advantage of after the fact with suboxone clinics and treatment centers and then all this other thing, like, what is this? What do you mean? Like, you know, how did this help me? How did it help you? You know what I mean? Like whether it was your direction in life was, look, I don't know. I'm hard pressed to ever assume that you were just some like, 
you know, piece of shit, like just running through life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was never. It, I was you know, a lost you, kid. I was a lost adult, broken, right. abused, beat up, um, confused big time. I, I just didn't know what success even looked like, but I just tried to get through each day, really. But re- the recovery part comes where you start forgiving people, forgiving yourself for all those bad things you've done and hurting yeah. yourself and worrying your family. And after a while, they, they don't worry about you anymore. And it's like, that's probably the biggest gift is that peace of mind and that love back that you get. But you didn't feel like that was going to happen again. Like, it's all going to, it's it's over. Like, the only... And some of us Good. never felt that beforehand. Right. Like that love and acceptance mm-hmm. and all those things. And the recovery family gives you that. And you're like, wow. A lot of other broken people that have come before us, you know, set the stage for us to be able to do this. And now we're doing it for others also. Mm-hmm. You keep paying it forward. And no matter what program you work, that's part of a huge the, thing. The, the cycle. Well, I think you made a good point, too, as you say, like all these broken people. Like everybody's broken, right? And the difference and the cool thing about people in recovery is that we, we recognize that each other are broken, that we're broken. So we have – this is the community where we're aiming to put people back together. Mm-hmm. And that's an unusual – that's the most beautiful part about recovery to me. It's like you have all these broken people that are trying to fix each other. Cool. You know what I mean? Because I get fixed and fixing you and you fix me. And, you know, it's like it's mm-hmm. it's a wild thing that comes yeah. to be. And it's like the more of that, like that mindset, take it outside of the constraints of, of you know, people who were addicted to drugs just in general with the compassion in a normal society would would take care of so many other issues. It just would. Now we'll stay. We'll pick our lane, and we'll and we'll do this because this is such a huge issue. So from that, from those experiences, from this almost this time where you believe you saw hell, genuinely doesn't matter. Like it was deeply personal to you, frightening to you. Okay, in that moment, you're like, I don't know. Like no way. I mean, you made a decision there, heard the voice of God, or you know, saw the devil's. You know, like met his eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go to treatment. I'm going to go there. And you listened and you stood still, you know, sat still and just did mm-hmm. that. And it, it kind of also overpowered the pride thing that I was holding on to that I didn't need help. Right. I was this tough guy. Dope boys don't go to rehab. Usually right. they get shot or they go to prison. Yeah. And Which is always so silly to me anyway. It's like that. Okay. I had to deal with some of the people, you know, calling me a sellout or snitch or whatever. But that was... That was just small fears that I had. You know, yeah, what are people like, going to look they, at me like? Mean anyway? Who now are it's ancient people? history, but some of those people are, are very broken themselves. You know, yeah. and so then you okay, so you you started doing helping out. You're an admin for that page, and then you said, "I'm going to do my own thing," mm-hmm. and you start that. And started what, Rockstar Recovery. Okay, was getting hands on. Um, you know, you said you're helping people in the community, helping getting people in the treatment, being so, fl- flown out to Alaska to speak. I got flown out to Alaska. Really? Was out in California, several places across Just Ohio. Just for being a part of that, you know, like creating that group. Yeah, this great nonprofit, Real About Addiction, Kim Whitaker up in Alaska. She is just an angel on earth. And she was able to fly anyone in America out there to speak in front of all of these professionals, doctors, politicians. And she chose me. And it was just a great honor. And I got to enjoy myself in Alaska too. And I'm just like, like I've never been to Alaska. You, you think I was about? ever going to be in Alaska talking right. to people about my childhood and stuff and overcoming that? And and I had to show people like, you know, people just see addict and they think of 
you know, certain things and the needles and living in abandoned buildings and stuff. Not but all no, of it's like that either. I was a college kid. I played sports. I was in a decent home, you know, it wasn't absolutely horrible, but like we don't choose that life, man. Like a lot of people think. Like I swore on everything I would never do heroin. And you right. know, you're doing it's, it. Right. Same. I mean, I did the dare program. I understood the how I mean, it was just like a series of bad choices that ultimately led to that. And like when yeah. I tell people, like, are you really surprised? You know, environment's a huge part. Uh, community. You know, I had Dr. Nav Kang on my show, and that's what he said. That bio, social. Wait, bio, social, social. Bio, whatever. Bio, sci- no, bio, psycho, social. Those are the three elements. Like your biological makeup, things that you can't, you know, help. Like because yep. your dad had them. Your psychology, the way your brain works. And then your social setting, like, and where you are and who you associate with. and everything. And yep. they're like, I can fix. I can give you a medication. I can give you therapy. But if you go back right into the ugliness of it all, the likelihood, those two things aren't enough. Yeah. And they might be for a period of time. And I think it's really cool, though, man. So, like, you've been doing this now for a while, gotten opportunities to speak. What has happened in your own life that is just, like, blows you away? The amount of people that... <sighs> Shown me love and support and come to me with needs or wanting me to help their family members and trusting me with them, basically. Like, that's a huge deal. And then being asked to speak and asked to, like, I'm an ordained minister. I marry people. I've done 20 of those weddings now. Like, I definitely never thought I'd be doing that. Yeah, that's wild there. So that's more of bringing families together instead of, taking them apart because back in active addiction like i i would not care if somebody had a a boyfriend or husband or not like there was just you know you're sick thinking you're just being selfish in addiction but recovery selflessness like you got to think of yourself less and give yourself to others um balancing that though because you can get worn pretty thin and with anything though and yeah because this is exactly. a tall order like i mean it is such a huge thing and, and people finding are your... so desperate that they 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 see you and find some hope like that's a beautiful thing but if people do that all day long day after day you're going you're to gonna... run out of steam well, and it's I've, like I've done that fatigue yeah, i've done that to that. myself and and now it's just about balancing all of that working smarter, not harder, not mm-hmm. trying to hit the streets and pull everybody out of the dope houses because if they don't want to come out of the dope houses, they're not yeah. going to get better. Yeah, you're going to be like, I'm going to get I'm saving everybody. Yeah, I'll throw and them I, on my back and pull them out of there. And, and, I, it's, I, and it's commendable, but then you're like, at what, because like, you will always have to do that. And you're like, well, yeah. no, I'm going to commit my life. Well, you can still commit your life to change and help by helping yourself and helping the people closest to you, the stuff that mm-hmm. we talked about prior to this. And yes. you realize that by affecting a lot, like, more change there that that has an outward effect that in turn they're going to take that and pass that on and it grows that's what i think that that's the the micro level that turns into the macro and as it spreads just like anything else how do you think even aa it's a beautiful thing you're like i'm gonna affect all change on these five guys and those five guys are gonna carry it to other five guys yeah you can call multi-level marketing, call whatever. Right. Pyramid scheme of, of recovery. It, it is what it is, but it starts with making change in one person's life, and you can do that here, then they can do it somewhere else. Yeah, and so some of our administrators for Rockstar Recovery are located across the country. We have Rebecca up in Wisconsin and okay. Stevie in Columbus, Derek in Indiana, 
And so like we're able to take the whole part of Rockstar and plug it into each one of those communities because it's right. on Facebook, it's on the internet. Can people can go see it, it yeah, reach out just like that, are. have a bunch of people to latch on to you. And it's just a great big family. That's cool. That's what it is. And uh, Rockstar Recovery itself, we embrace anybody. Like there's 12-step groups out there that just do it the 12-step way, and I respect those 100%. But we embody that. We also accept any form of religion. We're a big supporter of MAT, Mm -hmm. medication-assisted treatment. It's not up to me to judge the person that what they're taking, you know, to to make themselves productive members of society. If they're working a program and and contributing to society, I consider them in recovery. Yeah. The definition is just that desire to want to be there. Correct. We don't have to come in there and be abstinent off everything. Some people have mental illnesses, chronic pain, and they have to treat that stuff. Yeah. I personally can't take opiates ever again. I just, I just know that because I love them so much and I've been delivered of the desire to want to take them again. But I know if I did, I would probably go right back to what I was doing. And that's just, that would be an ultimate, you just. Yep. So it's a uh, day by day face. thing. Even it's still one day at a time, you know? And, uh, cause life still, you get into recovery and you still deal with stuff. Like it's a big thing is you can't fix right away is like your credit. Yeah. You know, you Take can't just, time. you can't. Like, no, it this took, is it definitely took an so effort. so long to destroy your life it takes a while to to yeah. fix it but just starting to do it getting the ball rolling you you see that you're not alone anymore all these other people want to help you're doing this amazing podcast now and you never would have dreamed you'd no. be doing this stuff and not all, at all all the people i just wanted to met, talk yeah absolutely it's beautiful that's how people learn no so uh i think i one how can people find you so you're on facebook at the they just search rockstar recovery and you guys will find that come up rockstar right? recovery is the group okay and, and then, then you have a website then we have a, a website rockstarrecovery.org that's and awesome anybody can get on that because not everybody has facebook that's correct so those two those are two locations um there's a treatment center tab on that website rockstarrecovery.org and there's a bunch of free ones these are all for ohio free right. and then state Medicaid ones. So they don't need to talk to anybody. They can just go call on there and find the information and call. I said, that's great. So you just one as a resource for other people. And then that one, group. and then the, uh, you know, we, we engage with people in the Facebook group. Gotcha. And if they want private interaction, we'll take them into a private chat with all of us administrators. And then we'll just, you know, shower them with love and stuff and just see where they're desired if they want treatment then we'll help get them into treatment we even uber them to treatment we have uber on our debit card um we provide care packages to people in treatment that just don't have anything right and if you don't have anything you're probably not going to stay in treatment that long no i, just like, I mean just even basic stuff right the, the radio at the end there too i was hearing your story and i was, I was like that's funny because the radio is a big thing for me too when i got that um, White Castle sandwiches that I could microwave, like that kind of stuff, kept me in treatment. Yeah. It really did. Because low care packages are a big so deal, we, man. We're able to do that for some people. Yeah, because it doesn't cause like when people really think about it this, it doesn't. It's it just does. one little act of kindness for people, and you've heard it so many times. But I always implore my my listeners and followers of the page to do something for somebody else because it just be compassionate because it doesn't go out of style and it doesn't cost you anything. It really doesn't. I met a guy last night, and I look, and this is typically because I'm not like, hey, look at what Aaron's doing and helping people out on an individual level because that's a, it's just in the moment. And I didn't plan it. 
And I, I showed up at, at BP last night on my way home from that event, which was so cool to do. But uh, I ran in there. I was so thirsty. And I, when I got out of my car, there's always homeless guys sitting out there. And frankly, you know, to a point, I'm all about, like, helping out where I can. But I already know, typically, like, I'm not going to give some guy some money. So money I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, unless I feel compelled to. And the same guy that was out there a couple of days ago, like, before I even get it, I get out of my car, he starts talking to me. I'm like, bro, you were just here yesterday. Don't you remember asking me? For, and I and I gave you like a buck, you know what I mean? Because I had it in my pocket. I don't carry cash. I just don't. And he starts telling me, he's like, man, look, I'm not from here. He's going down on this whole story. And, he, and he's like, he's look, meeting me in the eyes. He said, I'm not a bum. I literally, I came up here. This, this, and that. My, I, I parked my car. My car got uh, towed. My wallet, like all this stuff. And I'm listening to him, looking at him. He's country. He's not from here. There's no doubt in my mind. He's dirty. He's like worn out. He's like so beat. I was like, dude, I don't have, I mean, this just sucks. And I feel like like I see all these other guys being able to get someone to give them money, and they're going again. I'm just sitting here. The guy was nice enough to give me some water. I can hang out. I've been here for like three days. I just want to go home. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'll tell you what. I was like, I sometimes I have like I had a couple bucks in my car, but then I was like, that's all I have. I can't. I'm not gonna get twenty. I'm, I just I don't do it. And I said, just respectfully, man. But I was like, do you smoke cigarettes? He's like, yeah. I was like, what kind? Just go in there, buy him a pack of full flavors. Come out. He's like, the dude was just like. Thank you, because he was smoking, smoking cigarette butts and stuff. He just he looked beat up Little and sad. A long way. And that's the thing. And he was like, "I hope something good happens to you, Dan." I was like, and I remember responding. I was like, "Dude, my life is already good, and I appreciate it. And it's not the callous. I'm not sharing the story. I don't need anybody like, oh, Aaron, you're so sweet.' It has nothing to do with that. Because I really, I don't need people to say, Aaron, you're doing a good job. I don't. Because I look at my kids' eyes, or I look at my mom. My mom trusts her son, or my girlfriend, who's never had to have me like." You know, like outside of like that's white lies, and stuff. like that's the real that's reward. The real Not reward. even this. Like I get this. I feel fortunate to do what I do. Mm-hmm. So that's enough. I don't need like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I like it. I like be, having attention. It's part of my it job. It feels good to be I'm told a, you're doing good yeah, things. Yeah, it does. And I don't, I don't want to discount that. It's not the catalyst. You're doing no, it, no, no, you're no, no, no. not getting it. This is a self motivated thing. I've I been like. up in that stuff too. You know, like, oh, look at me. And I'm feeding homeless people and stuff. But then you realize, like, why am I really doing this? Right, exactly. But then you do it and you don't expect anything in return. You don't go share pictures about it all the time. And, and you stuff, can't, but, you know, like, I think we do this weird thing where it's almost like, Oh, how dare us share about positive things? You're like, it's up. I'm like, cool with it. I think it's good. I, I've told my buddies before because I've I, seen these messages. Ju- like, I, I can't judge somebody that's doing good things for people, especially I'm in my community. I'm like fight videos or something. But I, I personally don't like to ever share the people that were helping, like their faces or anything right. like that. But I like sharing in our moments of happiness and yeah. serving. Like, here's how you do it, guys. Yeah. Buy a bunch of Kroger's chicken and go set up shop and feed people in a hung- like they yeah. need food. And then you just feel good about it. You're doing something and you're praying for people, give them resources. We've helped people into treatment from our outreaches and stuff. And like that's making good impacts. And and that needs to be shared. People need it. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I uh, it's it's really developing that uh, that boundary, that level where is it self-seeking? And even then, who am I to say? Because but we at the end, can't right. judge that. Like, no, that's what I'm saying. Who am I to say? I have a lot of things to do. I don't have time to go judge people <laughs> right. for feeding no. people. Like, but really? I do see it. This like, is... oh, if you're going to feed homeless, don't take pictures of it. And like, why like, not? Really? Does it make, don't I mean, you have anything better to do yeah, than, than complain about shit people on his doing thing? good things right. for people? That's what I'm saying. I, I take the same position because I'm like, it's so silly. I... Uh, yeah, and we and I think that what often happens is this recovery well, that's mindset. Social media for you too. It's though. social media, and there's also the recovery community at times. Like, look, nothing's perfect, right? There's yes. not. 
And we're still human. We still make mistakes. And I think that there's this competition on spirituality at times. Like, who's the most spiritually self? Who gets the most likes and everything. I was battling with that for a while there. And then I got a lot of hatred from different people because I'm very open about my recovery. I've used cannabis in my recovery. It Mm -hmm. definitely helps me with my insomnia and my chronic pain. And I've been open about that because I have to be honest or I'm not going to stay in recovery. Right. And people, people are like, oh, how dare you? That Chris you? Skinner ain't clean. That Chris Skinner ain't clean. I'm just thinking like, well, imagine if I was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what I would be doing. And but you to know me, what? I'm doing great in life. My my son has his father back. You know, I, I'm a very responsible person. I don't even have to work all the time because of the CBD that I do. That's what I do full time. Like yeah. I have a very blessed life. God has really rewarded me from spending all this time with other people and things and it's like you might not get paid for it right away but you will get blessed for your service no doubt and sometimes it's not going to be a paycheck you know it it might just be you get to do another my landlord saw what i was doing online and he said you don't have to pay rent this month what thank you god i know you know like that's blessings right there that kind of stuff that you just don't plan for Man, I could definitely need that extra money this month. Yeah, now like, I can buy extra Christmas presents. If or... anybody wants to take away my bills for doing this show, let me know. <laughs> right. Chris is the one who brought it up. Chris, <laughs> and we got we do have to wrap up. I got to go to that uh, event up in Middletown, but I want to thank you for coming on. Thank what you. I ask everybody at the end of these shows is the same thing, and I'm going to ask you. If you could say something to someone who is still struggling, what would that be? You are definitely worthy of a good life. No matter what you've been through, uh, you can always turn around and head back the right way. And I'm an example of that. Aaron's an example of that. Many people in Rockstar Recovery are an example of that. But it's all within you. And you just have to do the work, have some faith, and, and surround yourself with good people. People that have done it before. And you're going to have to get rid of some toxic folks. Even if they're family, especially if they're family. You'll feel an obligation to them. You have to do your own thing and work your own recovery. Well, there you go. I see. I, I love that because everybody, there's so many similarities, but so many differences. So thank you for taking the time on this Saturday morning to share your story. Um, you guys, my listeners, you can find Chris rockstarrecovery.org as well as Facebook. Just search Rockstar Recovery. Some links for the group will be with this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Our numbers keep increasing. It is a beautiful, beautiful process. I want to thank all of you who take the time to dedicate an hour and a half uh, to listen to each one of these. Uh, Once again, for my international listeners, reach out to me on the Facebook page. Search Tragedy Triumph. I want to know how you found out about the show. Uh, You can also message me at Aaron.Lane, L-A-I-N-E, at FromTragedy.com. Thank you guys for tuning in. As always, no problem, dude. Thanks for for showing up. Uh, Yeah, let's keep it real. And as always, do big things. Good times.